Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on May 22nd, 2019. Good afternoon. Before I uh, introduce my guest to you, let me just remind you of some numbers. You've heard me say numbers like this before in the past. It comes up occasionally. So the American criminal justice system holds almost 2.3 million people. That's in state prisons, federal prisons, juvie, local jails, Indian County jails, military prisons, immigration immigration detention facilities, on and on and on. But still, 2.3 million people, roughly 700 people per 100,000 people here in America. So that's it's creeping up on 1% of the population it's it's 0.7 of 1% of the population and that's just uh, per capita there's no other country that's anywhere near anything like this and then you probably haven't heard me say this before the majority of people who are being held in local jails local jails uh, have not been convicted of anything um they are awaiting trial and can't make bail. I mean, that's pretty much the typical condition for more than half of the people uh, in jail. And if you look at the entire incarcerated population of America, there are half a million Americans, 500,000 Americans, sitting in jails or prisons, not having been convicted of anything. And, you know, those of you who have even the vaguest familiarity with our Constitution know that's really not supposed to be the case. There aren't supposed to be people in jail at all, really, who haven't been convicted of anything. So how did we get here? How did the United States get to be better at locking up its own people than any other nation in the world? And a big part of the answer turns out to be the incredible power of prosecutors. In some instances, as you'll see, particularly in our third and final segment today, prosecutors can become almost a law unto themselves, an almost uncheckable force in the locality where they serve. If serve is the preside is probably a better word. Um, so uh, joining us here for the first segment and the second segment, too, is Emily Bazelon. She's been with us many times before, staff writer uh, at the New York Times Magazine, co-host of Slate's Political Gab Fest, lecturer at Yale Law School, uh, the author of two books most recently and very significantly for today's show, the very powerful uh, nonfiction book, Charged, the New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. I should say it is all also a slate podcast. Uh, and uh, so I think I've now enumerated all of your credentials, Emily. <laughs> it's just we have to trim this bio somehow. Um, you know, James Cameron, the film director, at a certain point stopped mentioning that he directed Piranha 2, you know, because he wasn't really proud of it anymore. And you're going to need to start lapping things off at a certain point like that. I got it. All right. So, um, you know, this this book is a really, really, a truly powerful book. Uh, and, and it is very much about prosecutors uh, and how different crimes and different outcomes uh, can vary exceedingly basically based on the behavior intent uh, and practice of the prosecutor. Maybe the best way to begin is to start with quick summaries of the two defendants whom you follow uh, coming back uh, and forth, back and forth throughout the book. 
Yeah, and thank you so much for that introduction. One of the stories is about a woman named Nora Jackson, and this is really a story about a prosecutor overreaching and then abusing her power. And what happened to Nora was that when she was 18, her mother was brutally stabbed to death in the middle of the night. It was the kind of crime in a, you know, nice middle-class neighborhood in Memphis that there was a lot of pressure to solve and no obvious suspects. So while the DNA was off being tested, Nora was actually indicted for her mother's murder, um, mostly because she was out all night the night her mother was killed and suspicion started swirling around her because she couldn't account for a couple of hours in the middle of the night and she didn't tell the police the whole story about where she was. You know, she said afterward that partly that was because some of her friends and she were smoking pot and she didn't want to get them in trouble. So in any case, um, after Nora was indicted, the DNA evidence came back from the crime scene and it actually excluded her from, um, from the crime scene and pointed to two unknown suspects. There were full DNA profiles of two other people. But the prosecutor didn't look for those other people and the police didn't either. And so I talk about this as an example of tunnel vision, where once you have a suspect, there's a lot of confirmation bias that can come into play. Prosecutors and police want to interpret the evidence to target the person they've already chosen as the suspect. And so Nora's case kind of goes on from there. There's many twists and turns. Um, I'll just quickly say that her conviction is eventually overturned by the Tennessee Supreme Court because of misconduct by the prosecutor. So that's the story that is the kind of um, tale of prosecutorial abuse and illegal use of power in my book. All right. Now let's uh, talk about Kevin. He's your uh, other protagonist. Kevin is a young guy in Brooklyn. He's 19 when I met him. And his story is that he lives in Brownsville, which is a place with a lot of public housing, a lot of poor people. And he's in an apartment one night with a friend and his friend has a gun. The cops knock on the door with a search warrant because they know the gun is there. And Kevin has to make this split-second decision. He knows his friend has a criminal record and could get some serious prison time just for having the gun because of New York's strict laws. And so he makes this very quick decision to grab the gun. He has some sort of crazy idea that he's going to flush it down the toilet, which of course doesn't work. And he ends up facing serious felony charges for gun possession in Brooklyn. And so I use this case to both talk about the very ordinary use of prosecutorial power. This is just a run-of-the-mill case in Brooklyn. But also, it happens under a very different kind of prosecutor, Eric Gonzalez, who's the elected DA in Brooklyn, who has been nurturing a diversion program. And so what that means is that young people who face gun charges and some other felonies are pleading guilty, but then being diverted away from prison into a program where they work with a social worker for a year. So I followed Kevin's case to see what would happen to him when he got this second chance. Right. So, and Eric Gonzalez, and we'll circle back to him, but he represents um, not only uh, a prosecutor who's interested in diversion uh, for certain defendants, he's sort of a diversion from the norm that we're familiar with, too. Most of us, uh, whether we get it from the dramas we watch on television or from actually following these kinds of cases, we're familiar with prosecutors who, for the most part, overcharge, in other words, charge for as many things as they possibly can with the idea that even if some of the stuff gets knocked out, uh, they'll get a few of them. 
uh, who may go for the toughest possible penalties, who often, you and I live in Connecticut, by the way, we are uh, one of a small group of states that does not elect district attorneys, yes. uh, which I think is, I never realized what a good idea Connecticut had about not electing. But a lot of these prosecutors run on records of seeking tough penalties, of getting lots of convictions. And, and there's sort of a sense that there's no upside for thinking about this any differently, uh, that obviously the more defendants you convict, the better prosecutor you are. The longer sentences you get, the better prosecutor you are. And your book challenges a lot of those assumptions. That's right. And one of the reasons I challenge those assumptions, the main reason, is that in the last three years, a movement has bubbled up in cities all across the United States to elect a new kind of prosecutor. There are a few different routes for this movement. There's civil rights organizations. There's a lot of sense on the part of voters of both parties that the system we have of mass incarceration is wasting a tremendous amount of money because it's putting all these people behind bars who then cycle back to being behind bars rather than coming out and improving their lives or contributing. So I think a real question about use of resources. And then a third really important element is the Black Lives Matter movement, which I think has used these local district attorney elections to get communities of color and low-income people out to the polls and then deliver them a very powerful office that can itself have a real impact and make a lot of change. If you have a district attorney who wants to reduce mass incarceration and increase options like the diversion program we were talking about, that person can unilaterally uh, do a lot of things. And so I think there's this really interesting challenge right now to these old assumptions that prosecutors had to always be as tough as possible that's being driven by a new set of prosecutors who were elected to do the job differently and answer to a different constituency. Right. So as you point out, the 2016 election, what everybody remembers is Donald Trump, and he'd go on to have this speech about American carnage uh, for his inaugural address. Uh, but while that was happening, there was this other very opposite kind of revolution taking place. And as you point out, it's it's a bipartisanly embraced set of ideas. I mean, perhaps the ultimate example or proof of bipartisanship is that it tracks financial support from both George Soros, the left-wing boogeyman of the right, and the Koch brothers, the right wing uh, boogeyman of the left, <laughs> that that both of these groups see some advantage in not having this huge prison population. That's right. And you really can't understate what a shift this is. You know, just in the three or four years I've been working on this book, I've watch the politics and the public opinion polls really move. And now if you ask Americans, are you more likely to support a candidate who promises to reduce a mass incarceration, 60% of them say yes. And that includes a lot of Republican as well as Democratic voters. So like you said, I think there's a kind of bipartisan consensus emerging. And the speediness of people's change of hearts reminds me of the marriage equality movement, where I think that you have this sort of traditional set of assumptions, which is crime is scary and we should lock up every criminal. And then once people focus in and think about the issue differently through this lens of saving money or of just basic justice and trust in the law and building legitimacy for the law, people just like pretty quickly kind of come around to seeing it differently. Right. And and I think, I mean, reading your book, we understand more that 
um, if you seek maximum penalties, if you keep people in the system one way or another, being held without because they can't make bail, uh, being uh, after incarceration under a monitored probation for five years, you don't necessarily get the results you're pursuing. What you have is a person who is in the system for a really long time and maybe unable to realize his or her potential uh, and, and become a productive citizen and a less likely to violate citizen simply by just getting out of the system. That's right. I think we have grasped or are beginning to really wrestle with this concept that jail and prison produce more jail and prison. There's actually a word for this, criminogenic, like the way cigarettes are carcinogenic. Jail and prison are criminogenic. And once you kind of have that in mind, that can really shape what you think the role of jail and prison should be. You know, you still may very well decide, okay, when I see there's a real public safety problem, I'm I'm going to put someone behind bars. But if you think that jail and prison are counterproductive in the longer run in terms of producing more crime, you might start to question some of your own assumptions about retribution and deterrence and just use of public resources. Right. So some of the prosecutors, these this new wave of prosecutors we meet in your book, you mentioned uh, Eric Gonzalez. Uh, um, there's also Larry Krasner, this Philadelphia district attorney who had been completely on the other side uh, of this equation while in private practice, uh, regarded himself as essentially unelectable uh, for a job like that, maybe as a joke, because he did get elected. And he does stuff like tell his prosecutors to seek less than the minimum penalty for some cases. I mean, which is sort of an amazing thing to tell prosecutors who've been building their careers based on, once again, getting maximum penalties. Yes, it is a huge shift. It's an example of the kind of unilateral change that prosecutors can make. And, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about Krasner's story, as I try to start telling it in my book and continue to follow it, is that he is facing significant pushback. And so once you have these prosecutors really trying to shake things up, then you start to see some of the limits on their power and the way that some local judges or the police department or probation and parole can try to prevent them from changing the status quo. You know, there always are interest groups that are going to want to keep the status quo in place. So this wave is coming along, but I think it's still small enough so that we can learn most of their names. Uh, (laughs) Meanwhile, I mean, what we see in a much larger view, uh, and one of the cases that you, you look at is a pretty good example of this, are prosecutors who, because they're elected, are essentially a law unto themselves. Very, very difficult to supervise. And, and and I'm so glad that you dealt with this. This is sort of something that's been driving me nuts for years. Very difficult to punish, too, even in instances of naked prosecutorial misconduct. We're not saying all prosecutors do that, but just total violations of, of the law, total concealment of, of evidence. You, it's almost impossible to, to punish somebody. Yeah, I'm not sure how you can really justify it, honestly, standing outside the system because it's the lack of accountability is um, almost total. And these are people who wield so much state power. So let's break this down a little bit. One aspect of this is that prosecutors are absolutely immune from lawsuits. So like the police have qualified immunity. It's hard to sue them. Prosecutors effectively can't be personally sued for anything they do in the course of their jobs. 
So that's a big um, a big arrow in their quiver. And when the Supreme Court issued that ruling giving them absolute immunity in the 1970s, the court said, don't worry, because if a prosecutor commits a grave constitutional violation, another prosecutor will come along and prosecute the bad one. But we know that this is like almost never happening in the United States. It is, I found two cases of prosecutors who face criminal charges, like in history. Right. And these, these, I mean, the convictions amounted to days behind bars, right? That's right. And these are prosecutors who effectively hid evidence. And in the course of doing so, you know, at least temporarily ruined other people's lives. And then another part of this picture is the legal profession. So the Supreme Court also had faith that the bar, the local or state bar, through its procedure for disciplining attorneys, would address ethical lapses and constitutional violation on the part of prosecutors. And again, this is not a system that really functions. And I tell a story of this in my book to illustrate how difficult I think it is for local lawyers to hold another member of their profession responsible. You know, lawyers don't like to mess with each other's livelihoods. Right. And so, I mean, uh, this comes up uh, a bit in the uh, case uh, that you mentioned before, the young woman who's accused uh, of the murder of her mother. Um, And we eventually do find out that uh, there's what is typically called a Brady violation, a failure to turn over evidence favorable to the defense. That's right. And there's a second big constitutional violation, too, at Nora's trial committed by the prosecutor. And yet what happens after that trial is this prosecutor, Amy Weirich, is elected as the district attorney in Memphis. So the problems in this case really don't hurt her. Uh, And she is elected to an eight-year term. She's still serving. And this is all true even though there is a pattern of constitutional violations by her personally and also in her office. So I think this really does stand for this question of where does accountability for prosecutors really exist? And then if it doesn't exist, how dangerous is that um, for people who find themselves on the receiving end and, and don't have any way to really strike back? We don't have time to describe Connick versus Thompson, but when you read about it in the book, you'll realize how big a problem this really is. Um, There's a couple of places really quickly that um, this book kind of changed my mind about certain things. And I I wondered also whether it changed your mind about certain things. In particular, you know, in the case of Kevin and in the case of uh, New York City's attempt to curb the presence of guns in in a city environment, I, you know, spent most of my life thinking, good, the more gun control, the better. The more guns we can get out of the hands of uh, of potential offenders. Uh, the better. This book made me think, well, maybe I, maybe I and Bill de Blasio thought wrong about this. Yeah, I also wrestled with this. And it was actually a part of my reporting that made me feel good about the state of Connecticut. So in Connecticut, we have strict gun permitting laws. And we know that that is correlated with a reduction in gun injuries. That all seems good. New York has severe criminal penalties for gun possession, a mandatory minimum sentence of three and a half years for the most serious charge. And you almost always face the most serious charge if you're accused of gun possession because that gives prosecutors the most leverage. And yes, I do in this book, I think through the experience of Kevin and other people like him, really ask questions about that punitive criminalized side of gun control because what it is doing is putting a lot of young black men behind bars. 
Uh, and remember, this is a possession offense. This is not people who anyone has accused of shooting or even threatening someone with a gun. So that did, in fact, also shift my thinking as well. All right. Uh, I want to do this real quickly because we we got to get to a second segment with Emily and uh, Tony Messenger. And I, I feel as though like we could have Emily on every day for a week. And we, first of all, Emily get really tired of talking to me. But also, no. um, I, I we would not have really completed the, all of the important points of this book. So you just have to read it. Um, but I did want to say that there's one thing that's dealt with less in the book and more in your podcast, which is there's a certain point in your podcast where a person that you've been relying on is kind of an expert, somebody you could go to and say, is this the way it is? You know from – because you've been through the system. You know what it's like. He gets parole violated, and you get to discover in a very kind of close – at very close range what parole violation is like. And what it is is this twilight zone where constitutional protections to the whatever degree – they actually exist in the outside world, which I think you've laid bare to question, just are gone. There, there is no – there's just – there's a world that resembles our dreamt of criminal justice system in no way whatsoever. Yeah, this was totally surprising to me. I didn't know anything about the parole system, I confess, before I started working on this podcast. And as you describe, Kadeem Gibbs, who's the expert on our show, he's someone with a criminal record, but it was years earlier and he's become a real spokesperson for criminal justice reform. Suddenly he gets snatched up and taken back to Rikers 12 days before his whole five-year parole term is over. And Kadeem's, uh, the reason he's in jail is that he went to a children's defense fund conference in Tennessee without permission. And you're right. It turns out there's no due process for being locked up in this circumstance. For three weeks, he could be held without even hearing. And they could hold on to him for far longer than that. So for me, this was a real journey into thinking about these very long terms of court-supervised supervision and whether they are really serving a purpose. How could we do this in a more rational, thoughtful, helpful way? Right. Uh, so you have to listen to the podcast, too, and read the book. You've got a lot of homework ahead of you. we got to take a break. Uh, I want to add Tony to this conversation, so stay with us. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on May 22nd of 2019. All right. We're continuing to talk about how the criminal justice system either functions or does not function the way we would like it to with uh, Emily Bazelon. Uh, her new book is Charged, the New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and, and Mass Incarceration. Uh, and so when the Pulitzer Prizes came out, uh, I always look in the commentary to see if I've won because I am a newspaper columnist and it turns out I never have. And then I find out who did win. And in this case, I didn't really know the name, Tony Messenger. So I, I looked him up. Uh, he's a Metro columnist for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I discovered, because we already knew we were going to do this show with Emily, that he was writing about something that we're very interested in. So uh, fresh off his 2019 Pulitzer Prize for uh, commentary, he's joining uh, me and Emily for this part of the show. Uh, First of all, thanks for doing this, Tony. 
No problem. Thanks for having me, Colin. Nice to meet you and Emily both. So um, this is something that Emily... Actually, Emily, I'm going to have you set the stage and and then kind of hand the baton to Tony. One of the things you did look at very extensively uh, in charge is bail, the whole question of bail. More than half of the people who are in, in town jails are being held with no conviction whatsoever. They haven't been convicted of anything. We are holding a lot of people uh, without any conviction. And most of the time, uh, it is because they cannot make their bail. So, um, Emily, one of the questions that you liked, looked at in charge was, well, how do these bails get set? And it seemed as though the prosecutor has more power than almost anybody. When you look at what factors judges pay attention to in deciding whether to set bail and especially whether to set bail and high so that it will be hard for people to afford and get out, the factor that matters most to them is what prosecutors recommend. And for me, I have to say that learning about the whole American bail system was a revelation. I mean, I thought we have people pay to get out of jail at a time when, as you've said, they are presumed innocent because that was the only way to make sure they'd come back to court. And it turns out that's just not true. We know that's not true because Kentucky and Washington, D.C. have had no cash bail for many years. They ask people to promise to come back to court. They send them reminders. They connect them with social services. And almost everybody comes back. And it also turns out the United States and the Philippines are the only countries in the world in which cash bail and for-profit bail are legal because other countries worry about the exploitation and abuses that come with our bail system. So I think there's a lot to question here. And I just want to say a big congratulations to Tony on his prize for these excellent columns that you're going to be talking about in a second. All right. So, Tony, one of these things that you documented is the way uh, the poor people in Missouri are arrested for small time crime, uh, mar- marijuana possession, shoplifting, petty fa- theft. Uh, the first thing that happens is a bail is set that they can't afford. That means they remain in jail and then they face a whole new set of financial charges. Tell us about those. Well, what's what's happening in mostly these these rural counties is these people are are in jail. They can't afford their bail. They're there for 30 days or so. It also uh, helps make it worse that our public defender system is the second least funded in the country, and so there aren't enough public defenders to get to them. So you're stuck in jail. You've lost your job, your car, your access to your kids. You're there for 30 days, and the prosecutor comes to you and says, "Hey, you know what? Let's just plead guilty to this minor misdemeanor, and it'll be time served." And you say, of course, I want to get the heck out of jail. But what happens in Missouri that makes it really, really bad is that in Missouri, and this happens in other states as well, uh, in Missouri, you can be charged for your time in jail. So what happens is this poor person says, yes, I'm guilty. Let me out of jail. They get out of jail, and then they get a bill for their 30 days that can be in the range of $1,000. Well, they couldn't afford the $500 bill. There's no way they can afford the the $1,000 uh, uh, charge for their time in jail. And the judge sets a hearing. And that hearing is called a payment review hearing or a, or a debt review hearing. And, and the person now has to come back to court again. They've already plead guilty. They've already gotten their sentence basically suspended um, and, and done time served. And then they have to come back again. And if they miss that court hearing or they don't have any money to, to pay a payment on their bill, then the judge sends them back to prison again. And they start calling it probation violations and they start implementing the full sentence. I wrote about one woman who was literally just arrested on stealing an $8 tube of mascara from Walmart. 
She ended up doing an entire year in jail because of this scheme, and to this day still owes the court $15,000. It is an obscene uh, sort of recreation of the old debtor's prison that our country uh, long ago said is, is an unconstitutional practice, and yet it's been going on in Missouri for years and years. The good news is that both the Missouri Supreme Court and the Missouri legislature have responded to my series of columns on this and have started to implement change. But but as Emily uh, clearly knows from, from the research in her book, that's only one portion of it because they, it all works together. The bail the private probation company that the that the court relies on to find violations of pretrial release or or post conviction to send them back in jail to increase that jail board bill so that they can then try to get more money out of them the lack of public defender support it's it's all part of a piece intended to create a completely two-tier system in which if you're poor whatever you're charged with your actual penalty is going to be significantly worse than the penalty that people who might have some more financial means would face. So you you have a system that's almost impossible to escape from because by the time that you've been through this process, you can't make bail, you stay in jail, you get charged for, for board, uh, and it just sort of pyramids and cascades on itself. There's one guy that you wrote about who uh, stole a lawnmower at the age of 17, and like 11 years later, he's still in this system. He can't get out of it. He can't get out of it because he's never going to be able to afford it. And 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 the system is set up where the judge is basically acting as a tax collector. Here's the other thing apart about that system that's obscene. In most of these counties, because the state no longer has the tax revenue to fund it, state probation is no longer involved in, in, in misdemeanor cases. So these private probation companies have formed, many of them, and they're making a killing. And here's how they do it. When when the judge says, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna release you. Let's say you could afford your bail and and you pay your bail and the judge releases you. You still haven't been convicted of anything, but the judge requires you to be under supervision of this private probation company. And what does that private probation company do? You're charged with stealing, with shoplifting, with taking a lawnmower, whatever. Your charge has nothing to do with drugs. That private probation company is now going to start drug testing you and you have to pay for that drug testing. So now you're going to have to pay 30 a month or 30, uh, in some cases, a little bit uh, uh, that much, almost a week. They're going to call you and you have to come in and be drug tested. And then until I started writing about it, they were posting the results of your drug test on a publicly available website. So think about this. You haven't even been accused of a drug crime, but in rural Missouri, opioid abuse, heroin abuse, and meth abuse is rampant. A lot of these folks happen to have uh, drug addiction problems. Now the community knows that you're allegedly on drugs. You haven't even been charged, and yet that information is made publicly, and the judge is going to use that information to now put you back in jail because you have violated your pretrial release according to the private probation company whose financial incentive is to get you back in jail. 
Right. So, Emily, as you pointed out uh, earlier, the U- U.S. and I think the Philippines are the only nations in the world that allow for-profit bond companies to operate. But, you know, he's describing uh, a version of a system that you've seen in other ways, ways in which uh, a whole matrix, a web is created that makes it very difficult for the defendant to get back to the real world. Even something like, you know, having the proverbial ankle bracelet, as one of the people that you talked to said, pretty hard to go apply for a job while you're wearing an ankle bracelet. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think we have a system that treats some people, especially poor people, as if they're kind of forever criminals. It's as if they're always their worst mistake, and we're going to view them as objects of suspicion and make it very hard for them to rectify their errors and just come back and live happy, productive lives. One thing I'm so grateful to Tony for for highlighting is the way this can happen in rural as well as urban communities. I think sometimes because we think of mass incarceration as affecting so many black and brown people, which is true, we should think about that. We don't also realize that it's actually in a rural America where mass incarceration is still rising. So if you look at the urban statistics, you see the numbers going down slightly now. But in these rural communities, there is still this very punitive um, conception of criminal justice. And because of the opioid crisis and and problems of economic inequality, it is roping in more and more people. We should also quickly say, I want to get back to Tony for one more thing, but Emily, you know, I think you made this point at the top of this segment, but I mean, when you look at situations where bail is not used, I mean, so the whole theory of bail obviously is you post that money or you post some fragment of that money with a a bail company, a bond company, uh, and that's how we make sure that you show up for your next court date, except that when you don't have that system, people show up for their next court date. That's right. (laughs) I was so surprised by this, and yet it's true. And we're learning this all over the country through nonprofit bail funds that have started to post bail, especially in misdemeanor cases. And And we also know this from the state of New Jersey, which effectively eliminated cash bail in the beginning of 2017 and has seen the number of people in jail go way down and very high rates of coming back to court. It turns out that people understand that having a warrant out for their arrest is not a good idea. And, you know, often people who commit crimes, this notion that they're likely to flee, they're actually pretty bound to their neighborhoods and local communities. So I think all of this provides excellent reason to just rethink our whole cash bail system. All right. So um, I, before I run out of time here, because we're going to our final segment is going to be about the Curtis Flowers case, as chronicled in uh, the podcast in, in the dark. This is uh, another mind blowing uh, case. But I want to make sure I thank uh, Betsy Kaplan, a senior producer uh, of our show and producer of this episode. Kion Wolf is on the board today. So, Tony, I've only got a couple of minutes left, but I, I, I think one of the reasons, one of the ways that you bring your own humanity to this incredible series of columns is that, you know, they're but for uh, a little bit more than $80 go you, right? You you one time were part of a traffic stop where you could have conceivably gone to jail if you had maybe been a different race or a different person or not quite had enough money on hand? Absolutely. I wrote about this in one of the columns. Uh, one of the women that I had written about from Dent County, a woman named Amy Murr, she asked me one day, she says, why are you doing this? And I told her it's about the indignity of it all, and that that you know there, but by the grace of God, go me. I've I've, I've been arrested for driving without a license. I've I've been picked up for not having uh, my my registration up to date. But I had the money to, to to make sure that I didn't go to jail, and I was able to take care of the situation. And most of these people simply don't have the money to deal with 
the sorts of daily uh, indignities that sometimes people find themselves in a situation with. The, you know, the, one of the things, Colin, that's been fascinating to me about this story, though, is that people are getting it. And I don't know if Emily's experienced this nationally, but in Missouri, this is the most bipartisan thing I've ever written about. People on the far right and the far left both got it. Black people got it. White people got it. Brown people got it. The Supreme Court ruled unanimously that this scheme of having to, to, to force people to come back to court and face more jail time because they can't afford to pay their bill for their previous jail time is illegal and can't take place anymore. Um, We don't see a lot of unanimous Supreme Court decisions in Missouri, and obviously we don't nationally these days. That to me was fascinating, and it provides me a little bit of hope that this this criminal justice train that is starting to move through uh, our country really does have some momentum behind it. I think when you see it, I mean, Emily, uh, I'm running out of time here, but because of your book, I wound up uh, tracking down uh, from Harris County, Texas, uh, some videos of bail hearings. uh, And you see a guy in a wheelchair, uh, an old man in a wheelchair who's been arrested for panhandling, and they set the bail at $3,500, you know, and, and you think, well, he doesn't have that. Right. Of course not. And again, I think these are injustices that are visited on poor people, and they don't continue when everyone else focuses on them, right? As Tony's saying, once you get the kind of um, attention from politicians, you can have a bipartisan consensus that this is just simply unjust and irrational, feels terrible. And yet, one by one, when people are invisible in the system, it continues. And I think that's because so many of us would just prefer not to look too closely at how the sausage is made in the criminal justice system. Exactly. I have to stop there. Emily Bazelon, the book is great. Charged, the new movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration. Tony Messenger, uh, congratulations again on your Pulitzer Prize in commentary writing for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. You can find Tony's columns online. You should read them. You should also read Emily's book. Check out the podcast, Charged on Slate. We've got one more segment here, and if you think you've heard it all, you haven't. If you haven't followed the Curtis Flowers case, wow. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on May 22nd of 2019. This is sort of an odd moment for me because I'm really a big fan of, I, can you be a big fan of a podcast that gets you so upset? Uh, actually, one of the dumbest things I ever did was try to listen to In the Dark uh, while doing yoga out on my, my side porch. And you're supposed to be calm when you do yoga. And I was getting angrier and angrier. And eventually I was like throwing things around out on the porch, which is not good for my yoga mindset. So In the Dark, uh, the second season of In the Dark in particular, concerns a case that fits very much into our subject today. It is certainly uh, appears to be about prosecutorial overreach and maybe more than that. So joining us now is Samara Freemark, reporter and senior producer of In the Dark, an investigative podcast from APM Reports, a division of American Public Media. The host of In the Dark is Madeline Barron. Uh, Samara, welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. I'm sorry to interfere with your yoga practice. Well, well I mean, there were. It's, it was maybe it was a good thing. Who knows? Maybe anger. You like to get the the heart rate up. Yeah. So maybe we just have to re- review the Curtis Flowers case in a nutshell for people who don't know it. This is a man who has been tried a record six times for a capital crime. Right. So this case actually starts back in uh, in 1996 when four people were murdered in this furniture store in this little town in Mississippi. 
it was a really strange crime. There were no witnesses to the murder. There was really not much physical evidence. Uh, but very quickly, law enforcement focuses in on this former employee named Curtis Flowers, who had worked at the store just for a couple of days earlier that summer. Curtis didn't have a criminal record, and, and there was no direct evidence tying him to the crime. And he always said that he didn't do it. But um, in 1997, he was brought to trial and convicted. But that was just the beginning, as you said, of this long saga that has unfolded since then of Curtis Flowers appealing his convictions, winning, and uh, being tried again over and over again. Right. And what we see emerging is a kind of tunnel vision, right? There's this sense that the prosecutor, Doug Evans, and police staff associated with him have just kind of decided it's Curtis Evans. There isn't a lot, as you say, of traditionally strong evidence about this. They just know it somehow. It's it's a, almost a purely circumstantial case. So there's the only piece of direct evidence was the testimony of some jail, a jailhouse informant who said that Curtis had confessed to him. Other than that, um, the evidence is all um, is all circumstantial. So the evidence is not strong. It seems from our reporting that investigators settled on that theory very early and did not stray from it. And I haven't really seen any indication that um, that even now Evans questions that. Right. Um, as as these trials have gone along, I mean, there have been a lot of areas where there seem to be not only prosecutorial overreach, but misconduct, breaking of certain rules. Obviously, the one, and we're going to come back to it, uh, the one about jury selection is the one that has kind of created uh, the most furor and activity on the appeals circuit. But there's other stuff too, right? I mean, the requirements to provide a full range of evidence, including evidence that points in other directions, things like that. Those weren't followed either, right? So, so there's the stuff that Doug Evans has been caught and dinged for in the past. The reasons that Curtis's first three convictions were overturned, which had to do with jury selection, which we will talk about in a bit, but also had to do with Doug Evans misrepresenting the facts in the case, misstating facts, offering misleading timelines of what had happened. But then there was there was a lot of things that we turned up in our reporting, uh, potential Brady violations, which isn't when the prosecutor fails to turn over um, information that could be useful to the defense. Our reporting showed that jailhouse informants had been given, had been offered deals by the prosecutor, Doug Evans, which is allowed, but you have to disclose those deals to the defense and in court. And Doug Evans has always said that he never gave deals to the informants who've testified in the case. We also showed that the ballistics evidence in this case was deeply flawed. So there's a whole bunch of things like that that have never really gone before a court before because it's it comes out of our reporting. Right. So um, while you're listening to this podcast, episode by episode, I mean, Doug Evans becomes almost this kind of Ahab-like figure, except he's also a very blank figure. We hear about him. We don't hear from him. Uh, but he obviously seems very fixated uh, on this idea of Curtis Flowers being the guilty party. So at one point, though, finally, at long last, Madeline Barron, the host of the show, gets to talk to uh, Doug Evans. Uh, here's what that sounds like. When I looked at the case, it does strike me that the evidence is very weak against him. Yeah, I don't know where you get that. You hadn't looked at the evidence, if you think that. I mean, there are witnesses who, um, people who've given... There's, there's nothing weak about this case. Any juror that I have heard, except the ones that were lying to get on the jury, I haven't seen one yet that tried to say in any way that the evidence was not strong. 
So uh, he's alluding to partly uh, a juror, a black juror who did not vote to convict Curtis Flowers, was actually arrested basically for not delivering the verdict that the judge wanted. Right. James Bibbs in trial five. uh, He was the, the lone holdout. He was a black juror and he just felt like the evidence was not strong enough to vote for guilt. And at the end of that trial, he was arrested. He was let out of the the courtroom in handcuffs um, and accused of perjury, which is a felony. Luckily for Bibbs, eventually Bibbs's lawyers got Doug Evans removed from the case and the attorney general's office took it over and they dismissed it. I mean, all along, it's hard to listen to this podcast and not be appalled by the single-mindedness on slim evidence with which Doug Evans is pursuing these convictions. Now for the judge to step in in this really Kafkaesque way, I mean, arresting a juror essentially because he didn't do what you wanted him to do. I mean, I really was... I wanted to do something about it right now. Now I was like, what the, he can't be a judge anymore. Well, not only can he be a judge some more, he can be a judge in this case again, right? Yes, him and the prosecutor both. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the, the most striking things about this situation. And, and actually what drew us to the, the story initially was the fact of how the same characters feature over and over again, trial after trial. And there's there's no one whose job it is to step in and say, like, hey, guys, you know what? It's Maybe it's enough. Like, right. maybe we should try someone else at this point. All right. And so uh, fast forward a little bit. Uh, this has gone to the Supreme Court. We are awaiting a decision from the Supreme Court, but we've heard the oral ar- arguments now. Uh, you're going to hear in this clip, I believe, Brett Kavanaugh and uh, Elena Kagan uh, questioning the Attorney General, Jason Davis, who's representing uh, Mississippi in this case. And when you look at the 41 out of 42, how do you look at that and not come away with thinking what was going on there was what the dissent in Batson said was permissible, but the majority said was not permissible, that there's a stereotype that you're just going to favor someone because they're the same race as the defendant. I, I respectfully, in this case, in no way agree that there was some prior determination made by the district attorney that that because of this person's race, they were not going to be favorable. Uh, Again, this case has spanned some 23 years now in this small community. One of the inherent problems... I I, I guess I don't understand how you can say this. In this case, there were three adjudicated Batson violations. Two. Okay, two. Two. We have to explain about the what he means by 41 out of 42. One of Doug Evans's strategies, uh, at least it appears to be his strategy, which is to have as close to an all-white jury as he can. So explain how that works. Sure. So this is a case that is obviously very racialized. So it takes place in this small southern town. Town's about half, half black, half white, slight white majority. Uh, the defendant is black. Three of the four victims were white. So Throughout Curtis Flowers' trials, despite the fact that his community is almost half black, half white, he has always been tried by either all white or mostly white juries. The reason for that is is because of something that happened in jury selection. Both the prosecution and the defense in jury selection have, have an opportunity to do what's called striking jurors. They can get rid of some people who they don't want to see on the jury. You get a certain number of strikes and you can say, like, I don't want this person. I don't want this person. And they're removed from the jury. And you can use almost any reason to to do that. Um, you know, I don't like school teachers on my juries or he lives too close to Curtis Flowers. 
But one reason that you absolutely cannot use is race. So you cannot strike a black juror because they are black. And that is a very big deal. That's a violation of the U.S. Constitution. If you do that, it's called a Batson violation after a Supreme Court case called Batson v. Kentucky. And Batson violations are really hard to prove because you can the prosecutor can always give another reason for striking a black juror. It's very rare that a judge or a court will find a Batson violation because they're so hard to prove. But Doug Evans has actually been caught in two of Curtis Flower's previous trials committing Batson violations in trials two and three. Um, So he has this record of striking black jurors because they are black. And so in trial six, the most recent trial, that jury was um, all white except for one black juror. And the defense has said since then, Doug Evans, again, for the third time, committed a Batson violation. He struck black jurors because they are black. So in this cut, Kavanaugh is talking about how Doug Evans has struck almost every black potential juror who came before him. And so Kavanaugh is asking, how can you look at this pattern um, and not think that he is he is doing this on purpose? And the attorney for the state, whose voice you hear in that too, who's an attorney for the attorney general's office, is you know starting to try to push back on that when Kagan interrupts and uh, underscores how many times a Batson violation has been found, which I, I cannot stress enough how unusual it is for one prosecutor in one case to have multiple Batson violations. So Samara, you know, as I'm listening to this, as a lot of people are listening to this podcast, uh, and if you haven't listened to In the Dark, I really recommend you get started now. This is season two that we're talking about, and and no conversation we have here could possibly convey how just completely bizarre and outrageous a lot of this stuff is. But I think a lot of us are listening going, this can't be. This is so clearly wrong in so many different ways. There's got to be a remedy besides, I mean, obviously, it's being heard by the Supreme Court right now. But that wouldn't even necessarily free Curtis Flowers. I, I, no. Go ahead. If the Supreme Court rules in Curtis's favor, the remedy, like what Curtis will win out of that is a new trial. Right. So trial seven. Yeah. I mean, I think I had I had this really strong feeling when I was sitting at the Supreme Court and, you know, I'm sitting in the press section and I'm seeing this room and it's, you know, it's full of red curtains and gold. And it just you feel the weight of this branch of government. So we have the nine most powerful judges in America sitting there. And then we have arguing for the state, the representative from the attorney general's office, the highest legal office in the state of Mississippi. And the sense of being there and watching these incredibly powerful people who had no ability to stop Doug Evans from prosecuting this case. Right. And and so the question is, who's the referee? You know, who gets to call foul? Who gets to eject Doug Evans from the game? And, and is the answer structurally nobody? Well, I guess the, the answer is the voters of his district. Mm-hmm. Really, the only people who matter here are the people who are voting him into office. The way to take him off a case is to vote him out of office. That's certainly not going to happen with Doug Evans Anytime soon, he's up for re-election in November, and no one's running against him. Right. Well, listen, uh, this is a depressing place to end, but there isn't really <laughs> an inspiring place to end. So we're going to stop here. But joining us has been Samara Freemark, senior producer and reporter on In the Dark, an investigative podcast from American Public Media. Samara, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Just
of the hurricane The many authorities came to blame For something that he never done 